The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. In case you're new, uh, so the program goes to 9 o'clock, and we ask people to stay until 9. We try to end right on time. And that way, uh, the last part where we have an open discussion or questions People aren't leaving at that time. It's just a nice way to be respectful for that piece of the program. And I want to thank Nicole Terrace. Hopefully some of you got to hear her last week, a longtime leader here in our community and teacher, and uh, really glad that she was able to teach for me last week. I was leading a retreat out at IMS, Incent Meditation Society, Massachusetts, with a dear friend, um, Kamala Masters, and another teaching colleague, Deborah Ratner from Washington, D.C. Kamala Masters has been one of our sort of senior teachers here over the years. I think she's been coming almost every year for 22 years and teaching mostly in the summer, but she regularly teach out, teaches out at Spirit Rock and IMS, and recently I've been teaching with her out there. And so I'm coming back now to this series of talks on the paramis, these ten beautiful qualities of the heart. And uh, I've been saying, you know, we could come up with our own list of ten beautiful qualities of the heart, and they'd probably look a lot like this list that comes out of the Buddhist tradition. There's generosity, there's integrity, this quality or this commitment to non-harming, there's renunciation, there's truthfulness, there's energy, there's patience, there's equanimity, there's resoluteness, There's loving-kindness, did I say equanimity? And equanimity. So these are the ten beautiful qualities of the heart. And uh, in the tradition, the thought of these are the, like having noticed that potential in our heart, we basically see how to cross over life's floods, is one way it's said. So the floods, in terms of the Buddhist teachings, like we get swept away by sense desire. We see something sparkly dangling in front of us and we think, I want that. If only I had that, I would be so happy. Things would be so fine in my life. Or we want to become something. Or we're, we get swept away by some fixed view, some fixed view of myself, who I am, or who I think you are, or what I think is right, what I think is wrong. So all kinds of ways we get swept away. And there's always a quality of being swept away, which is the mind, the heart, and then the body. It gets tight. When we're swept away, we're tight, it's stressful, it hurts. And so to cross over, you can just see if one of these qualities helps you, gives you immunity to being swept away by life. And then, of course, one of the terrible things about being swept away, it's not only stressful in our own body and mind, but then we lack clarity. So what we think, what we say, what we do in the world causes distress for others, too. And on and on and on. And we end up with a world that's literally overrun with distress. And it's not just on the surface, it's like built into the structures of our culture. Fear and division and 
Uh, just different ways of throwing people out of our heart, people who, for whatever reason, we see as being different than us. So starting tonight and then also next Wednesday, we'll look at how renunciation can be one of these qualities that we have, the heart, has this potential for. Now, like the last topic was this commitment to non-harming, and before that, generosity. Sometimes when we hear these qualities, our mind, our heart shrinks back because we think renunciation, we think I have to give up exactly what I like. You know, I've got this great new cell phone or I've got this dear friend or I have this promotion at work or my body is just so healthy and now you're asking me to give that up. But what we're really giving up is the mind's attachment. It's not the good things that we have, that we have to give up. But we have to notice that the mind being dependent on something is stressful. Now sometimes to find out that you're attached to your cell phone, you have to go on a Buddhist meditation retreat. We had at this nine-day retreat that I taught out in Massachusetts, we did a little ceremony because it's hard for people to give up their cell phones. And so we put a basket and we asked people to walk up to the hall, power down the cell phone, you know, put it in an envelope with their name on it, and the, the staff there, they have this big safe, so it's going to be protected in the safe. And I think we got about 30 out of the 95 people or so that were on retreat. But that was pretty good. And, you know, people, we all have our excuses. Well, I don't have a watch. It's the only way to keep track of time. But it's hard to... Like it's easy to say I'm not attached to checking my email or checking for messages. But you could just ask yourself, well, can I get from now until 8 a.m. without checking the news, checking email, checking text? Right? So it's just an exploration. Like, well, maybe we are dependent on knowing. Maybe we can't put that down. Same with a meal. Like we know we wouldn't, may actually do us a lot of good to skip a meal, meal, but it's not so easy to just say, well, let's just experiment. It's not that eating is bad. Clearly, eating is good, right? But being dependent on having food, well, that, that attachment actually hurts. It's tight in the mind and heart. We may not notice it because we're busy and running around, but anything we're attached to hurts. So you can just experiment in different ways. You know, generally the Buddha wouldn't teach about renunciation right away. He would wait till people were really happy, had some basic shelter and success in life and safety, lived in a culture where they felt respected and acknowledged. So not people who are oppressed or people who are being taken advantage of, he would, you know, those things have to be addressed. But then once they're addressed and somebody has sort of normal or hopefully normal happiness of safety, of some financial security, some shelters, some social connections that are healthy, then he would ask them, you you notice that happiness? Good. Now, I'm going to ask you to start noticing the limitation of the happiness that you have. 
But I'm not saying, and he didn't say that those happinesses are bad, but just to notice the limitation, that no matter how comfortable our existence is, how fortunate we are in life, we want to begin to notice that that's limited, that whatever that security we have, it's limited. Whatever health, whatever kind of friendships, whatever success, it's limited. It comes and goes. And that's not like my problem that it comes and goes. It's just part of the fabric of existence that we live in an insecure world where things come and go. Because what he'd want us to do is catch the whiff of the joy of renunciation. So renunciation is liberating. It's not a should, it's not a wait. All ten of these qualities, generosity or truthfulness, energy, patience, loving kindness, equanimity, resoluteness, as we begin to sense what the Buddha is pointing to, what that quality of mind, of heart, the Buddha is pointing to, we want to see it as an enlivening and liberating quality that helps us get across or protect it from what would otherwise sweep us away into states of suffering and stress. So by understanding, and renunciation first and foremost is an understanding, more than an action. If we take up some action, like we skip a meal or we give away something, then that action is in the service of transforming our understanding. Does happiness come from having and being attached to what we have? Or does real happiness arise when the mind realizes it's not dependent on anything? not dependent on conditions being the way they are. I mean, it's easy for me to say I'm not dependent, but then, you know, I get a canker sore or I stub my toe or it's rainy for three, four, five days in a row, you know, then all of a sudden I realize I'm dependent. I'm dependent on seeing the sun. We haven't seen the sun for a while, you know. And then we realize, oh, well, maybe there's a way to be where the mind isn't dependent. It's nice when it's sunny, but maybe it's the heart, the mind doesn't have to be clinging to the idea that it needs to be a particular way. Or we like being healthy, but maybe it's okay not to always be healthy. Or we like it when people around us like us, but maybe it can be okay when people don't like us. I see this as for me personally, a really uh, place of, of practice where um, I expect people to think that I'm a reasonable person. And when it arises in my life that somebody doesn't think I'm reasonable or somebody thinks I'm unskillful or bad or wrong, it's shocking to me. And to for my mind to be dependent on all of you thinking that I'm a reasonable and good person is a setup for suffering. Because regardless of whether I'm in some, not that there is an objective standard as to whether I am a reasonable and good person, but the fact will be some people won't think that. So if my mind is attached, identified, dependent 
then all of a sudden I've created the conditions for suffering. So I'm, I'm dependent that you think I'm a reasonable and good person. And if you're even having body language that suggests otherwise, then I start getting anxious. And maybe I'll start to more neurotically try to get you to like me or think I'm good. Which will do, if it does anything, will make you more convinced that something's wrong. You know? So we we have to begin. This is the path of renunciation to really beginning. The beginning of seeing the joy in renunciation is we have to begin to explore, be interested enough to explore the challengers up there. Wherever we notice there's a dependency, an attachment, we have to associate or see, is there suffering there? My mind's dependent on this being this way. Oh yeah, that hurts. It actually hurts. It's stressful. And then in other places of our life where we've the mind, the heart has released its attachment, we want to notice the flavor of freedom. Right? Like where we see that somebody doesn't like us, but we're actually okay with that person not liking us. It doesn't even mean it's pleasant, but we're okay with it being unpleasant. It's like, it's a very interesting thing. This is like the essence of Dharma, this practice we do, you know, where some painful experience comes in and it's not like we're pretending we're not feeling it or that it's not landing or not touching the heart, but it's not stopping there. It just, in a sense, goes right through. So somebody shows up, we interact, they say something or do something that wasn't what we expected, wasn't what we wanted, but we're not attached. So that means we're not attached to feeling the impact of that interaction. Oh, it hurts like this. Isn't that interesting? It really hurts like this. Well, can that be okay that it hurts like this? Or do I need to resist it? Like, oh, that's not, it shouldn't be this way. And then the mind will proliferate. And in proliferating, the mind is hanging out with that contraction. It's renewing the contraction over and over and over for as long as the mind proliferates with that. So again, renunciation doesn't mean that the heart isn't touched by life, by the good, the beautiful moments in life and the really difficult, challenging moments in life. It just means that with more and more wisdom, the wisdom of renunciation in this case, the mind is okay by being touched. We see something, hear something in the news that really bothers us. Well, can we let in that we live in a world where this happens? doesn't mean we're going to be passive. Actually, it means that our response is going to be informed by being deeply touched that this is the world, this is how it is. Sometimes it's like this. Something like this happens and then someone like me hears about it and then some feeling like this arises and can that be okay that in this world where there's somebody who hears this and feels this, can it be okay to let it all be? And then if the mind, heart, body is motivated to do something, to respond, to speak up, to then can that be okay for it to be that way? to show up in this way, not knowing what that 
is going to set in motion, not knowing how the world will respond to me responding, me speaking up in that way. It's a very interesting sutta. I love this sutta, this discourse from the Pali Canon, the earlier, the earliest recorded teachings of the Buddha. This tradition here at Kamagran, we're sort of, you know, just symbolically at least, and, and actually more literally, we're students of this group of teachings that come out of the Pali Canon, the teachings of the historic Buddha. And so one time, Ananda, the attendant of the Buddha, who is also the Buddhist cousin, who then ordained as a Buddhist monk, a student of the Buddha. He had been interacting with some lay people and he brought them over to the Buddha because he thought it was pretty interesting what they were saying. And he asked um, them to speak to the Buddha. And they said to the Buddha, we are householders, right? So they're not monks, not nuns. We are householders who, who indulge in sensual desires. Sounds like us. Delight in sensuality. Enjoy sensuality. Rejoice in sensuality. For us, indulging in sensuality, delighting in sensuality, enjoying sensuality, rejoicing in sensuality, renunciation renunciation seems like a sheer drop-off. Yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, the hearts of very young people leap up at renunciation, grow confident, steadfast, and firm seeing it as peace. So right here is where this doctrine and discipline is contrary to the great mass of people, right? There are cultural habits. So it is, the Buddha says. So it is. Even I myself, so he's talking about himself, before I had my deep insight, became someone with real wisdom, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, bodhisattva just means somebody on the way to becoming fully enlightened, becoming a Buddha. Even I thought renunciation is good, seclusion is good, but my heart did not leap up at renunciation, did not grow confident, steadfast, or firm, seeing it as peace. So that makes us feel good now because we're hearing about renunciation. We might think, yeah, intellectually it sounds really good, but I still want my comfortable bed And I still want people to treat me the way I want to be treated. And I want the world to become a better place where people are treated justly, you know. And I don't want global warming to cause mass destruction of the species on this planet. And, you know, on and on. We have our list of demands that we demand in order to be happy, right? I mean, just to be provocative, Do you think it's possible, like, let's say we had uh, understood the scenario of global warming or racial injustice or any one of the great sort of problems, and we saw it unfolding in a really bad way. Could we, on the one hand, be fully engaged in doing whatever we could and be happy? That's the kicker, right? So let's say there's 20 years left for the species on the planet. And we're going to, let's say, just we know we're going to live 20 years or most of that. Could we be engaged in doing whatever we could do as a good citizen, good community member, but not justify, not think that we have to be tight 
Right? Do we have to be tight because there's injustice or suffering in the world? Can we be engaged, alive, and effective human humans without suffering? So this is the issue of renunciation. We, it makes sense. Like, yeah, it makes sense that we should be able to be engaged with these very serious problems without being tight, without suffering or being stressed. But when it comes down to it, we think that these problems are in the way of being relaxed. So that's why we like denial or that it's somebody else's responsibility. Racial injustice, well, that's the responsibility of people who are prejudiced, right? That's the sort of sense that we have, like somehow it doesn't involve me. This is called not being awake, like not being aware how whatever this is, whatever injustices we live with in this world, we're all part of it. There's nobody outside of any of these endemic cultural problems. But it's easy to think that it's somebody else, you know, that what's going on in the Middle East doesn't involve us. So the Buddha says, I didn't leap up at renunciation, right? And then he said, he, like a good practitioner, right? So this is, now he's talking about how he practiced. So it occurred to him, right? Because it does make sense. Non-attachment makes sense to us intellectually. So the question is, are we going to do the next step that the Buddha did? He says, Then the thought occurred to me, I haven't seen the drawbacks of sensual pleasures. I haven't pursued that theme. I hadn't contemplated the limitations of constantly pursuing things as I like them. Like thinking that my happiness comes from getting what I like. I haven't pursued how ultimately that's stressful and frustrating. You know, some of us have put some time into our gardens. Or some of you have put some time into getting your body really fit. Or some of you have spent a lot of time gaining knowledge, like getting really smart about a particular subject or cultivating certain friends. So pursuing that, those are all sense desires, you know, sense experiences that we desire. So now the Buddha is not saying you should not cultivate sense desires, the things you like, the experiences you like, but he's he's asking us, like. He did, you know, well, are there any drawbacks? Clearly, there are some advantages of of sense pleasures, right? Getting something we like, there's something nice to that. But is there any risk to it? And this is what starts to highlight, not that the sense experience itself is bad, but the mind's dependence on it hurts. It's stressful. It's a literal weight on the heart, on the mind. But if we don't do what the Buddha said he did, contemplate that, we'll never notice it because we'll be too busy trying to fulfill, trying to get the sense experiences we like to be interested in what goes with that pursuit. Oh yeah, there's that feeling of me being dependent. We certainly notice that when some of these sense experiences that we like get taken away from us, 
like it becomes winter and summer is no more, or we get sick and our health is no more, or we lose something, somebody we love, right? or some bubble gets burst, you know, thinking that we're beyond things. There's this uh, thing you can take online, the implicit bias, forgetting the whole title. But I think if you just Google implicit bias, you'll get to this. It started at Harvard University, but they these very clever researchers have this this test you can do, and it will reveal implicit biases that are just built in because of how we've been conditioned in culture, where uh, kind of exposing our attitudes about people who look different than us, or even uh, according to gender, and there you are trying your best not to be a bigot, not to have prejudice, and then the test reveals that. You know, and it's really uh, like, oh, I had this idea that that's not me, and then we realize, oh, well, maybe that is me. So these things that we're dependent on, we don't like those bubbles to be popped. We're really comfortable with our delusions or our bubbles. So the Buddha said we have to contemplate the limitations of any bubble, any sense experience, including sense of, I, of who I am. That's a sense experience too, some view. So it includes the experiences of the mind, the experience of sound and sight and touch, all those things that were dependent on, were dependent on, were... Um, we're vulnerable to suffering when they inevitably change, when our view gets challenged or when something we like is taken away. And then the other thing the Buddha says, I ha- uh, the Buddha says then, and I haven't understood the reward of renunciation. I haven't familiarized myself with that. That is why my heart doesn't leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast, and firm. And later in the talk, he says, having understood the limitations or the drawbacks of all experience, the, the dependence on experience, the attachment to experience, to really see the drawback or the limitation or the suffering of that, and to see the joy of renunciation, then that changed, right? The, uh, the heart does leap up. And it's basically the Buddha's way of saying, it, and it comes from insight, it's, it's not enough to get this intellectually. We actually have to contemplate with our own experience that any attachment, any place our mind is dependent, right now, not later, right now, is an actual weight. It is actually <clears throat> taking, away, uh, taking away our happiness, our sense of well-being. And this is something we can do all day long, not just in a meditation, that any time you're attached to being on time and you're in traffic, right? Do you notice? Now, we could notice how our well-being disappears waiting in traffic because our mind is dependent on the idea, I'm somebody who should be on time. It's not fair. This is not right. This is not okay. Okay. Because we're dependent, we're attached to being the one who's on time. 
or not being the one who's seen as being, you know, negligent or something. And then we say, oh, I don't have any well-being. There's no happiness here. Attachment, no happiness. Correlation. And the same thing in those moments where we're not attached and noticing the lightness and the freedom in those moments. You know, we thought we got our favorite cereal at the grocery store and then we realized that we, in a moment of spacing out, we grabbed the wrong thing. And uh, we can't believe it, you know. And we can either, you know, have a moment of non-attachment, okay, so I guess it's going to be this, you know, or I guess it's going to be this at least tomorrow. Or we say something, we do something stupid. Sometimes we make mistakes. And we can be not attached to being the one who makes mistakes. Or we can be really attached. So all day long we can contemplate the joy of non-attachment, the joy of renouncing attachment, renouncing the mind's dependencies. And we can notice the suffering of having dependencies. And this changes how we are in the world. We literally become a different kind of human being. Because we're on a different trajectory or we're on a different path. We're on a, now as an ordinary human being, we're pretty much all the time on this path of attainment, getting what we like, right? So we trust our attachments, what our mind is dependent on, and we're doing our best to do that. And then when we can't, then we hate ourselves, or we hate life, or we hate the people we imagine are getting in the way of us getting our attachments. And that's basically how we seek happiness. We hate whatever it is that we think is in the way of getting what we want, and we love getting what we want. But we're never done getting what we want, if you haven't noticed. It's just there's always more to get. But isn't that our basic strategy? Get what you want. Get it. And it's, you know, we're, we try to be sophisticated about like how we actually can get it. Some ways work better than others. And like the Buddha says very clearly, whatever gratification there is to desire, I've experienced that. Meaning there actually is gratification. There is a pleasant experience when we get what we want. The Buddha says in another place, if it didn't feel good to get what we want, beings would not be attached. It's precisely because it does feel good to get what we want that we get attached and we think that's the way to real happiness. But it is the way to temporary happiness, but it sets emotion and addiction of thinking that happiness comes from getting what we want. Some of us have been fortunate to get a lot of what we want in life, but still we want more. It's not like, oh, I'm there, I don't need anything else. Right? Anybody there? You know, I finally got enough, so now I don't need anything. It doesn't work that way. Getting what we want doesn't lead to peace and happiness. It leads to becoming a person who thinks that happiness comes from getting what you want. Right? Pursuing what we want makes us a somebody who thinks happiness will come from getting what we want. So that never ends. Because we've become the person who thinks getting what we want leads to happiness. So the Buddha says at another place, lose the greed for pleasure. See how letting go of the world sends 
experience is peacefulness. We're letting go of the attachment. And he says, he goes on, he says, there is nothing you need to hold on to and there is nothing that you need to push away. Sylvia Borstein, who wrote a great book, if you want some background, you want to do some study while we go through the 10 paramis, these 10 beautiful qualities of the heart. Sylvia is a wonderful teacher. She, way back when, taught at Common Ground, which she was on a book tour. She's written a number of good books, including this one, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, Practicing the Perfections of the Heart, the Buddhist Path of Kindness. So it's a book, you know, 10 chapters, one in each of these 10 paramis. She teaches out on the West Coast at Spirit Rock. And she says in this book, I need to keep rediscovering that the pain of the struggle to get what we want. I need to keep rediscovering that the pain of the struggle is greater than the pain of desire. Because the way we mask the pain of desire is we struggle to get it. But we have the option to just feel what we feel. That's what mindfulness teaches us. We can just be right in the middle. So whatever you think is incomplete in your life, let's say you're single and you think you'd be happier in a partnership, or the other half of you, you're in a partnership and you're wondering if you'd be happier not in it. (laughs) So you're one of those two people. And like she says, I need to keep rediscovering that the pain of the struggle, wondering if I'd be happier, wondering how I could be happier, is greater than just feeling what it feels like to have the life we have in this moment. But it's not about being passive. It doesn't mean we're not going to do anything. It just means that our action in the world is going to arise out of being okay that it's like this now. It doesn't mean it's good that it's like this. It just means it is like this. This moment is like this. So the first step is to be here, to feel what we feel, and to practice. It's a practice being safe, being okay, okay enough to actually let the moment touch the heart. So if we're feeling really lonely, instead of not wanting to feel that, so we go to the bar to look for a partner, it might be better to be willing to feel that feeling of being alone and to realize it's safe to be lonely. It's not uh, pathological or wrong to feel lonely, to feel alone. That actually I can let that in. I can just let it move right through me. My heart, the mind, the wisdom is capable of being lonely or happy or angry or jealous or any emotion. It's actually okay to feel that. And then once you've made peace with that yucky feeling, then decide if it makes sense to go to the bar to find a partner, right? Or maybe go online or what people do. But you're not doing it because you're afraid to feel a feeling, right? A lot of times we'll do all kinds of things to avoid feeling what we feel. And the image that's used in the tradition, it's a little bit of a dated image, but you can imagine one of those big water buffalo or a bull or an ox, you know, that farmers would use to plow the fields. And you probably have seen pictures with a ring in the nose and they tie a rope to it. And then even a small child 
tug the rope and that huge, powerful animal would basically do whatever the little child would ask them to do because they don't like the feeling of being tugged. Now, it, it would just take, you know, a moment for that big animal to get loose. But they'd have to be willing to feel that feeling. But they choose a life of imprisonment. I mean, just for story purposes, they probably couldn't get away. But you get the idea, right? That we avoid a little pain, but instead we get a lot of pain. We get a lifetime of being imprisoned to our desires. There's no way to be a human being without desires. But we can radically change how we relate to desire. And this is what Sylvia is saying, that we can be willing to feel the pain of desire, the unpleasantness of desire, or we can spend a lifetime with the pain of struggling to, to kind of act out our desires. That's our choice. Are we going to be imprisoned or enslaved by our desires? Or do we have the capacity to feel what we feel? There's no way to be happy if we're not willing to feel what it feels like to have desire or fear or anger or basically any emotion that human has. Just because we have an emotion doesn't mean that emotion is, knows what we should do. You know, if we just act out the emotion, we're going to end up in prison or unhappy. So as a wise human being, we're learning to feel the emotions that are moving. And there's sometimes intelligence with emotions. And sometimes it's just a feeling. It, but we don't have any clarity about, we don't know what to do or what would be skillful to do. So to have to do something just because we have a feeling can lead us into a lot of bad situations. We see something we really like, that doesn't mean we should take it just because we really want it, right? So it's so nice to be able to feel the feeling of really wanting something without needing to do anything about that feeling. There's no way to stay in a committed relationship unless you perfect the skill, right? We have to be around people who are attracted, we're attracted to and okay with that feeling. Oh, yeah. There's that, there's that feeling of attraction. I know that feeling. I don't have to gratify that feeling. I can just, because I know I can just feel it. It feels like this. It doesn't feel good to be really attracted to someone and not be pursuing it. It feels like this. Or can that be okay? Just like in the same way, somebody can really upset us and we want to put them down or, you know, hurt them in some way. But we could just feel what that feels like. To want revenge, well, that feels like this. To be deeply hurt feels like this. I don't actually have to say anything to the person. So just to finish this quote from Sylvia, I need to keep rediscovering that the pain of the struggle is greater than the pain of the desire. If I keep the habit of restraining myself, I'll enjoy the relief of feeling desires pass. Because that's what they do. They cease on their own. Just because I have a desire to put somebody in their place or to get something, doesn't mean I have to do anything. Because if I'm just present, that desire will cease without me doing anything. 
Isn't that true? We don't believe it in the moment, but it's actually true. Think about how many desires we have have had. Where are they all? They cease on their own. So the next time you have a desire, like go home, sit in front of the fridge, and bring to mind somebody, something in there that you'd like to eat. Notice that desire. And if you just are there, now you can notice some moments you're feeding it, like what you pay attention, like how good that will taste in your mouth. Then you might proliferate for a while. But at some point, when you're not feeding the desire by thinking about it, the desire will just go away. And then something else will happen in the mind. Desires cease without anybody doing anything. Because everything in this universe arises, lasts, and then ceases. Nothing is forever. Have you ever seen anything that's forever? Or maybe this law is forever. Things arise. This is like how people summarize the teachings of the Buddha. This is a good mantra, by the way. Things come and go. Things arise and cease or rise and pass away and are not personal. Things arise and cease and are not self. So anytime something's happening, something really beautiful, something really difficult, just remind yourself, everything comes and goes and is not personal in the end. It seems personal, but actually it's just nature. Just the nature of causes and conditions for this to be arising in this moment and being known and eventually to cease, to pass out of the mind, to not be known anymore. How many times have we been deeply upset or deeply happy? Those experiences arose and passed. And if they were really mine, I should be able to have it. But have you been able to hold on to anything? So clearly, in the sense of ownership, we don't own. Whatever this is that's coming and going, if we owned it, it would be ours. But we don't own it. It's a natural process, this life. Nobody owns it. It's unfolding lawfully, as it should, given all the different causes and conditions at play. So I'll end with this poem, and then hopefully some of you will have some wisdom from your own life to share with the group or questions. So this is a, there's a wonderful poet, David White, and this is his poem, Enough. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again, until now, until now. Let me read that again. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again, until now, until now. And he has a, there's a paragraph that he wrote about writing this poem. He says, it was as if I had caught a delicious scent of something I had long forgotten. And I think he's talking about the joy of renunciation, the joy of letting go. And he goes on, a bedrock faith in my own perceptions. How would that dangerous path on the ridge between chaos and order look if I were to say that everything in my life is enough? That's a 
really good Dharma question he asked. So, what comes to mind, questions, or what you've learned that you'd like to share with the group? And, uh, Alan, do we have the, Alan has the mic, so just raise your hand and he'll pass it on to you. And remember to point it right at your mouth. Who'd like to start? Yeah, Kevin, over here. I've never, <clears throat> I've never used this before. <clears throat> um, I guess what comes to mind for me is when I'm arguing with my wife about something ridiculous. And it's so hard to get just a little distance. Um, I think like this thought, this, this um, argument or whatever case I'm making that I'm right... And she needs to know it. Uh, but I, it's so hard for me to get a little distance, enough distance to say, you know, let's say I had the, the mantra, you know, this aversion, this desire to, to be right. Uh, it, arri- it arises, it, it passes, it ceases, uh, and it is not self. Man, that, that little mm, nugget right there, that little space, Man, it just feels when I'm in the heat of the moment and I'm really mindless, it feels thousands of miles away. Yeah. But then we can acknowledge like that that split, like we can be living a life of where we're investing in attachment, we're believing in attachment, the fixed idea in the mind, or this other path, which is based on that things come and go naturally, according to causes and conditions, so they're not self. It's not personal. It's not personal that it feels this way now. It's okay to feel it. Just because it feels this way doesn't mean it's we should act it out in the way the mind is conditioned to act it out. And just to be reminded that that's a possibility. And then when we choose the other way, the attachment way, then just check to see what the results are. What does it set in motion? Acting out attachment. What happens? Because why wouldn't we want to know whether the path that we're taking to happiness, does it actually lead to happiness? Seems like we'd want to know. Because this, uh, the Buddha says this, you know, if somebody um, were to let go of a minor happiness and receive a greater happiness, a wise person is happy to make that bargain. You know, yeah, I'll let go of this in order to get that. So there is a kind of unpleasantness we experience when we're not acting out our desires. We're actually feeling the tug or pull or push of that fear, that anger, that desire, right? We're intimate with it. So we're letting go of the pleasantness of distraction, of thinking that this struggle, this attachment is going to lead somewhere. We're letting go of the temporary juice or whatever we get from that pursuit and the possibility maybe of getting some temporary sense experience. We're letting go of it. And we're not going to let go of it until we start to intuit that there's something greater in the the mind not being dependent. That's why the Buddha says we have to contemplate the drawbacks. 
So it doesn't matter what choice you make with your wife in that argument. If you make the the choice to stay attached, to be attached to your ideas and to be attached to convincing her that you're right, then just practice contemplating the drawbacks of that attachment, like what comes from it. And then if instead you practice letting go and not acting out that attachment to your point of view, then contemplate the release, the happiness of that non-attachment. So we want to see the happiness of renunciation and the suffering of attachment. And that's what changes. I mean, that's the practice. Thanks. That that was the the few times that I've uh, kept myself, excuse me, from uh, saying something that would only prolong the argument and really practice mindfulness. I, I have clear memories of like how nice it it turned into. Like it didn't necessarily end the argument right away, but right. but I didn't feed it. Man, those are great memories. And the and the times when I let myself go and say what I shouldn't have said, I don't remember those times at all. Almost they're almost a blur. I think because I they're just so unpleasant. Yeah. I, I can't I can't keep them close. But yeah, and so we might have a lot of ideas about how our life we want our life to unfold and we don't have to eliminate those ideas from our mind. They arise, there they are, but we're holding them really lightly. Those are just desires being known, right? And I don't really know how it's going to unfold and I'm okay not being in control. But I'm going to, I'm going to participate in how it unfolds, but I know that I'm not in control. And it's a little scary to sort of own that, but that's actually the case. And it's really light to be honest in that way. It's like, now I don't have to be, like, take it personally if my life doesn't unfold the way I think it should. Or take it personally that it did unfold the way that I think it should. So I'm having this nice thing because it's my life. You know, we we personalize it. It's time for one or two other people. Yeah. You want to pass the mic over, Kevin? Thanks. Yeah, um, I'm struggling with a... I don't know if it's an attachment to fixing or an attachment to fear that's connected with those two. And um, what I'm... Part of this is, is an, what I've been noticing about practicing around this... Uh, so there's someone that I love who may have a um, mental decline coming. So it's fear about what might be coming. And what I've noticed is that I get caught up in that and it inter- interferes with my being with that person in the here and now and recognizing that you know, whatever the future is bringing, right now, I'm with the person. And I'm, and when I let that, you know, have the sense of the fear being present, but then let myself notice the moment, then, you know, there is a sense of relief and of being fully present with that person. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, a constant 
sort of ongoing struggle to remind myself, you know, as we set up medical appointments, as we do these, take these steps, um, and it's easy to fall back into a sort of pattern of of, of not being present because yeah. of the fear, yeah. and sort of projecting forward into what might or might not be a reality of the future. Who knows? No, it's right. But what you know absolutely is when the mind says no, you're suffering. You probably are creating suffering to the people around you in little or big ways, right? And when the mind says, I don't know, I know that I don't know. And it's basically this, uh, this sense that it's all workable. I mean, that's just a very interesting hypothesis about life, our life, as it's going to unfold. Just to whatever it is, Maybe it's workable. You know, maybe the path to happiness is about not how this life unfolds, but about how to say yes, moment by moment. Oh, yes, it's like this. And so how to be intimate, engaged, and responsive with the life that actually is arising for us, as opposed to telling life, telling nature the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Time for one more thought. Anybody like to finish this up tonight? Yeah. Um, so um, we've, my husband and I, um, have become very familiar with problems. <laughs> um, Ten years ago, my husband was diagnosed with young onset Parkinson's. And um, then when we got to the point where we felt like, okay, we can adjust to this, then um, he had a heart attack, although all of his vessels besides one was, you know, clear. And then he had a brain surgery, and then speech became difficult. And we continued to just adjust and to accept that this is the norm. In the beginning, you fight it, and then you realize you're pushing against a wall. And then you move on. And then I was diagnosed with MS in February. And then two months ago, my husband was laid off from his job. And I like when I think of these things, I think these are all insurmountable. But honestly, every time we have risen over it. And just being here today even, I don't know, just is a feeling of kind of, yeah, renouncing what you think you have in life in realizing that you can keep going. And it, it, when you get to that point, it is pretty powerful. And I never thought that I would get to that point, but I feel like we kind of have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we hear it in your voice, and I really appreciate you speaking up and sharing that with us. It's It's contagious when we hear from people who have what we fear, you know, yeah. and and are still human beings, alive, engaged, probably, you know, experiencing the same kind of ups and downs through the day as everybody else in the room in a lot of ways, even though obviously some things have radically changed. Yeah. So thanks so much for sharing with us. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you came tonight. 
So let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time to take a breath or maybe two breaths together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.